This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Today, our regular contributor, Bill Bright, brings us a fascinating story about the day British troops finally left American soil after the end of the Revolutionary War. Here's Bill. The British Army held New York City for two years after Cornwallis surrendered to George Washington at Yorktown on October 19, 1781. The city's population had fallen below 10,000. Most of the residents were loyalist refugees from revolutionary terrorism. Accident disaster and the war had disrupted civic life. The great fire of September 21, 1776 had burned everything between Whitehall and Broad Streets, as far up Broadway as Rector Street and as far up Broadway as Beaver Street. Rents had risen 400% within the first year of occupation. The price of food and other goods and services, 800%. The Provincial Assembly, City Council, and courts were dormant, although nothing indicates the politicians had stopped drawing their salaries. The city was governed by the British Army, and its government, in the absence of a free press, had become corrupt. Some New Yorkers made fortunes. Mr. Joshua Loring, who had pimped his blonde wife to General Sir William Howe to gain appointment as commissary of prisoners, became wealthy by selling provisions meant for prisoners of war on the black market. Others cloaked their sadism in the red coat. Captain William Cunningham, the Provo Marshal, commanded the jails and prison ships holding American prisoners of war. The Sons of Liberty had roughed him up before the war. He repaid the debt with interest. He enjoyed torturing people. According to Burroughs and Wallace's Gotham, Cunningham admitted to murdering as many as 2,000 American prisoners by starvation hanging or poisoning their flour rations with arsenic. At night, he swaggered through his domains, wearing the red coat with silver lace and epaulets, the cocked hat, the powdered wig, and the tall glossy boots and spurs, with a whip in his hand, sending his prisoners to bed, shouting, Kennel ye, sons of Kennel ye! On November 30th, 1782, the American and British delegates signed preliminary articles of peace. The first article reads, His Britannic Majesty acknowledges the said United States to be free and independent states. The articles were proclaimed in the King's name from the steps of the City Hall on Wall Street. The Loyalists were horrified. William Smith, a longtime resident, merchant, and fervent Loyalist, wrote, that the news shocks me as much as the loss of all I had in the world and my family with it. Thousands sold everything, furniture, houses, land, goods at fire sale prices and prepared to leave. A few committed suicide. A few were confident of their ability to survive any change of regime. James Riker recorded that a New Yorker said to his tailor, how does business go? Not very well, the tailor replied. My customers have all learned how to turn their own coats. Sir Guy Carleton, commander-in-chief of His Majesty's forces in North America, began organizing his command's withdrawal from the city in April 1783. 
Concerned about personal reprisals against the Loyalists, he held out until every Tory who wanted to get out had left. In the meantime, his staff arranged transportation, settled accounts, paid bills, and auctioned off huge quantities of army surplus. The first 5,000 Loyalists left New York for Nova Scotia and New Brunswick on April 27, 1783. Thousands more followed. With them were numerous African Americans, former slaves, freed by the British military government for their services in the king's armies. On September 3rd, 1783, Americans, British, French, and Spanish signed the Treaty of Paris. The news reached New York in early November. On November 21, 1783, Carleton ordered all British forces to withdraw from Long Island and Upper Manhattan. That morning, George Washington met George Clinton, the governor of New York, at Terrytown. They rode south through Yonkers to Harlem, where they stopped at a tavern near what is now Frederick Douglass Boulevard and 126th Street. The day chosen for the evacuation was Tuesday, November 25th, 1783. It dawned cold with a bitter northwest wind. During the morning, a Mrs. Day ran up the stars and stripes over her tavern and boarding house on Murray Street, its first appearance in the city since September 1776. Captain Cunningham, resplendent in red coat and white wig, pounded on the door. Take in that flag, he roared. The city is ours until noon. He then tried to pull it down. She belted him full in the face with her broomstick, bloodying his nose, and then dealt the captain such lusty blows as made the powder fly in clouds from his wig and forced him to beat a retreat. Washington had chosen General Henry Knox to command the American troops marching from McGowan's Pass in what is now Northeastern Central Park into the city. Knox had been a bookseller, a dumpy, bespectacled little man who had read every book in his stock. The war transformed his theoretical passion for artillery after all, he'd read all the books about it, into practical experience. Behind the glasses and the big belly was the soul of a lion. And you're listening to Bill Brike tell the story of the British troops finally leaving New York. And by the way, many years before the New York Harbor, George Washington had written in his diary entry that day, and the book 1776 starts off with this entry, few men know the predicament we're in. Because nobody knew for sure how many British ships were going to come. The British had come to win. And my goodness, the battle inside this country, the Loyalists taking one side, that was one-third of the country siding with the Crown, one-third with the Patriots, and one-third hiding under their desks, hoping for it to pass over. And New York City... Chaos. People fleeing. It was an exodus. The town had 27,000 people. At certain points, it got down to 8,000. When we come back, more of this remarkable story, the British finally leaving America once and for all. That story here on Our American Story.
And we're back with Our American Stories and the story of Evacuation Day, the now-forgotten holiday which celebrated the 25th of November in 1783. On that day, the British armies finally left the now-free United States after the Revolutionary War. When we last left off, Bill Bright was telling us how General Washington had chosen a bookseller-turned-general to take over as the British left our new country. Here's Bill to tell us more about General Henry Knox. In 1775, in the dead of winter, he inspired Continentals and militiamen to drag the cannons seized at Ticonderoga in the name of the great Jehovah and the Continental Congress to Albany and across the Berkshires to Washington's army at Boston, and he had marched with them. As a boy, I noticed a monument near my family's home in Latham, New York. It read, Through this place, past General Henry Knox, in the winter of 1775-1776, to deliver to General George Washington at Cambridge the train of artillery from Fort Ticonderoga, used to force the British Army to evacuate Boston. Knox set out early from McGowan's Pass, heading a column of some 800-foot dragoons and artillery. He paused at the Bowery and 3rd Avenue, near today's Cooper Union, until 1 p.m., chatting with the British officers commanding the Redcoats standing a block or so before him. The last British detachments now received orders to move. They moved down the Bowery and Chatham Street, picking up their outposts as they passed, and wheeling into Pearl Street, marched to the East River wards where they were rowed to the fleet. Knox followed the British down Chatham Street and then turned onto Broadway. He marched south to Capes Tavern, a little below Trinity Church, and formally took possession of New York City in the name of the United States. On receiving a message from Knox that he had done so, Washington swung into the saddle and rode downtown, Governor Clinton at his side. At the new jail, at the northeast corner of today's City Hall Park, Captain Cunningham paraded the Provo Guard for the last time. Accompanied by the hangman in his yellow jacket, Cunningham's command passed between a platoon of British troops, which fell in behind them as they marched down Broadway. They and the City Hall's main guard thus became the last enemy forces in history to occupy New York City. Washington rode down Pearl Street to Wall Street and then went on Wall to Broadway. At Cape's Tavern, a group of citizens welcomed the commander-in-chief. An eyewitness said, The troops just leaving us were as if equipped for show and with their scarlet uniforms and burnished arms made a brilliant display. The troops that marched in, on the contrary, were ill-clad and weather-beaten and made a forlorn appearance. But then they were our troops, and as I looked at them and thought upon all they had done for us, my heart and eyes were full, and I admired and gloried in them the more because they were weather-beaten and forlorn. The British had left the Union flag flying over Fort George on the battery. The halyards, the lines for raising and lowering the flag, were gone. The banner had been nailed to the staff. And the pole was greased, heel to truck, to prevent or hinder the removal of the emblem of royalty and the raising of the stars and stripes. The grease rebuffed all efforts to climb the staff. 
In the crowd was Captain John Van Arsdale, a New Yorker, revolutionary soldier, and peacetime sailor. Recalling Peter Goulet's hardware store about 10 minutes away in Hanover Square, he sprinted across town and liberated a saw, hatchet, cleats, rope, and nails. He began nailing the cleats into the greasy pole. He climbed a little, drove in more cleats, and climbed farther. Bit by bit, he ascended the pole. He reached the top. He ripped down the British flag and flung it to the cheering crowd. Then he attached new halyards and scrambled down the pole as the stars and stripes ran up it. General Knox's field guns began a 13-gun salute. As the colors went up and the cannon roared, the British weighed anchor and made for the open sea. That night, Washington and his officers met with General Clinton in Francis Tavern at Broad and Pearl Street for a feast of reason and a flow of soul. They offered 13 toasts to allies, friends, comrades living and dead, their hopes for their new country, and certain immutable principles. The next nine days were marked by what one observer called good humor, hilarity, and mirth. Thus, at Governor Clinton's dinner for the French ambassador on Tuesday, December 2nd, 1783, his 120 guests consumed 135 bottles of Madeira, described as, it may not look like much, but it can fell an elephant, 36 bottles of port, 60 bottles of beer, and 30 bowls of punch, while breaking 60 wine glasses and eight cut glass decanters. On Thursday, December 4th, Washington breakfasted with his officers in the long room on the second floor of France's tavern. Then the commander-in-chief rose to his feet, and there was silence. Most intelligent warriors who have written of their experiences, from Xenophon to William Manchester, admit that they fought not for king, flag, or country, but for the guys they were with. The revolutionaries were no exception. Washington said, With a heart full of love and gratitude, I now take leave of you. I most devoutly wish that your later days may be as prosperous and happy as your former ones have been glorious and honorable. Then he could say no more. General Knox stepped forward, embraced him, and both men wept. At last... Composure regained, the commander-in-chief went down the stairs, popped on his cocked hat, and strode into Pearl Street. The infantryman snapped to present arms. He acknowledged the salute. Then he walked west. Orders were barked. The column moved out behind him. Near the battery, at the foot of Whitehall Street, a barge waited to take him to Paulus Hook on the New Jersey shore. From there, he traveled to Philadelphia, where he resigned his commission to Congress and returned to private life. November 25th was celebrated as Evacuation Day in New York for more than a century. But Evacuation Day was gradually overwhelmed by R.H. Macy's aggressive promotion of Thanksgiving, a rival end-of-November holiday. Around the beginning of the First World War, it faded away. Yet in 1983, through the support of Manhattan Borough President Andrew Stein, New York City commemorated the bicentennial of the evacuation. A parade marched down Broadway to the Battery, featuring hundreds of reenactors in the uniforms of the British and Continental forces. The British Union flag was flying from the staff of Castle Clinton. Then Harry Van Arsdale, the Union leader and direct descendant of Captain Van Arsdale, stepped forward to lower the British colors, 
which were presented to Her Majesty's Consul General, who kissed them. Van Arsdale clipped the stars and stripes to the lanyards and ran it up the pole. A dozen brass muzzle-loader cannon along the battery began firing a salute, and the crowd cheered wildly. On August 16th, 1824, Marie-Joseph-Paul-Yves-Roche-Gilbert de Mautier, Marquis de Lafayette, the last living general of the revolution, the hero of two worlds, landed at the battery to begin his tour of the United States. Tens of thousands were awaiting him. Among them was a company of veterans of the revolution. The Marquis insisted on inspecting them and slowly walked down the line, greeting and shaking hands with each man. Lafayette took a second look at the last man. Then he smiled. Van Arsdale, he said, I remember you. Then the captain who had ascended the flagpole and the Marquis who had been a major general at 19 embraced. And we thank Bill Bright for that beautiful storytelling. And my goodness, well, that's why we do what we do here at Our American Stories. Uh, What we've lived through as a country, what George Washington did. And by the way, we have a special, special hour on Washington resigning his commission. Because as King George III said, if it's true that he did what they say he did, he's the greatest man that ever lived. No one had ever done anything like that. Win a war and then go home. And that's what he did. He won a war and went home. And that's what... So many of these men and the women who sacrificed so much did. Washington returned to Mount Vernon only once during the entire war. And my goodness, go to ouramericannetwork.org and listen to that story of Washington resigning his commission. And we have the military historian at West Point, Sean Scully, on that. And an historian named David McCullough. You've probably heard of him. And the president of Hillsdale College, Larry Arn. Three different perspectives on this remarkable achievement. Evacuation Day, the day the British troops finally leave America in 1783. Put that on your celebration calendar, folks. What a great day, especially if you're New Yorkers. This is Our American Stories. stories and today we're talking to Eric Motley. We've heard from Eric before about his life and a place called Madison Park. Madison Park was the first plantation to be bought by former slaves and Eric told us that they came together and formed a community, a community that would eventually raise Eric. Eric, in your book you write, quote, I have often wondered if it's somehow in African Americans' bloodlines to be good storytellers and good talkers, because by law, slaves weren't allowed to learn to read. I marvel all these years later how so many of the elderly people of Madison Park, with no formal education, used pitch, volume, pause, pace, crescendo, even a whisper, to make a joke or tell a story such as they did in Little Joe's backyard. Eric, who's Little Joe? 
Little Joe was the son of Big Joe. And Big Joe was really the first barber I ever knew. And we would go to Big Joe. His name was Joseph Simon, the senior. We would go to his house. Granddaddy would take me, and we would sit in his little crib, and I would have my hair cut. And, of course, he ended up dying. And little Joe ended up buying the house of Mrs. Cheney Jackson that was several doors down from us. And on Sundays, right before church, early on Sunday mornings before Sunday school, all the men of Madison Park would gather at little Joe's house. And they would sit on the front porch. And they would pass time away until they went to church. And my grandfather would grab me by the hand and he would walk me through the field, under the old pear trees, through the grove, and he would take me over, and I would arrive, and I would sit, and I would watch my grandfather get his hair cut, and I would hear all the town gossip, whose voice had broken, and who could no longer sing in the church choir, uh, all the family relation problems that people were having, and who needed some extra money, and how people had to organize themselves to, to support said person. I heard everything, and then all of a sudden I would hear my name, and uh, and everyone, all the older men would call me the boy of George Motley. You're the you're the boy of George Motley. There were times that I actually thought, well, you know, I have my own name. And now, in retrospect, I realized that one of the great joys that I derived in my childhood was being associated with this incredible man that everyone knew by his full name as George Motley. And young man, get up in this chair. And I would climb up in the chair, and little Joe would put a cape around me, a barber's cloth. It was a sheet or a towel from the house. And he would proceed cutting my hair. And he would say, how do you want your hair cut today? And of course, it was a question that was already, the answer was already known because he had been cutting my hair for years, and there was only one hairstyle that he knew how to give everyone in Madison Park. And so my grandfather would say, oh, the same cut, Joe. And Joe would proceed. And I would hear all of these people pass the time away. I don't write about this, but my grandparents, of course, required me to give recitations at the dinner table. My grandfather would say a prayer. He would turn to me and he would ask me if I would recite something, a poem by Robert Frost or something by Langston Hughes. or, And so every meal was... Uh, preluded with a prayer and some recitation. It could have been the Declaration of Independence, but I mention that because always at little Joe's house, when I got out of the chair, someone would say, recite something for me, George Motley's boy. <laughs> and in that moment, the spotlight would be on me, and I would have to stand, and I would have to recite something. And in our little church, Union Chapel, there was only one Bible up on the altar, and it was the King James Bible. And the King James Bible was, as you know, so compacted with these and thous and weather twos. And we just had to learn the weather twos and the these and the thous. And I would always be asked to recite the 1 Corinthians 13. The people of Madison Park love. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I've become a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. And then someone would ask me, what is a tinkling cymbal? And my grandfather would help me with all of my responses. I think that much of our lives are um, 
glued together by the stories we learn at an early age and the stories we tell. And if they're beautiful stories and stories of hope and stories of reconciliation and stories of forgiveness, we tend to carry those stories with us and we tend to live into those stories and they become our stories. And those were the stories that I heard as a child in Madison Park. And there were stories that were told to me by ordinary people who ended up being some of the most extraordinary people in my life. My grandfather's friends, for sure, many of them, had never gone off to technical school or even graduated for ninth grade. They were domestic in their professional lives. They were plumbers and they had farms that they managed or they worked on construction sites. My grandfather started to alternate his friends to take me to the Montgomery Public Library. And on Saturdays, my grandfather took great pleasure driving me into the city of Montgomery. We were in city limits, but barely. And he would drive me to the Montgomery Public Library. Mind you, this was a library that my grandfather never would have been able to go into. My mother was not allowed to go into the Montgomery Public Library because of racial laws at the time. And, and so I was the first recipient of this gift of being able to go through those bronze doors at the Montgomery Public Library to ascend the stairs and to sit at the reading tables and to check out books. And one of the most beautiful memories is my grandfather asking other friends of his to drive me. And they would drive me on Saturday morning, most of them never having even been to a library and all of them just sitting out in the parking lot waiting on me, two, three hours of being in the library, and just having enormous satisfaction and pleasure in knowing that I was able to do something that they were not able to do, or had not been able to do. And they would always ask me when I would come out and get back into the car, tell me what you learned today. Tell me a story. And one of the greatest compliments was for me to hear Nebo Johnson or Mr. Van or Mr. Ray later tell that story to someone else. And we're listening to Eric Motley, author of Madison Park, A Place of Hope. Go to Amazon and The Usual Suspects, buy this book, share it with friends. It's a remarkable story, not just about a town, but my goodness, a very special town. Madison Park was the first plantation to be bought by former slaves. And Eric, well, he weaves intergenerational storytelling of an African-American community and how it raised him, a community raised him. And by the way, what he said about storytelling is so beautiful, and we concur here on Our American Stories with the power of story. I think he said that much of our lives are glued together by the stories we hear at an early age and the stories we tell. If they're beautiful stories, stories of hope, stories of reconciliation, and stories of forgiveness, we tend to carry those stories with us, and we tend to live into those stories. And I don't think there's been a greater truth uttered on this show than what Eric just said. And that's why we do what we do every day here on Our American Stories. Tell stories of hope, reconciliation, and forgiveness. Eric Motley, his story, 
and Madison Park's story here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and we continue now with our Opportunity America series that's sponsored by the folks at Koch Industries. More than 67,000 people across America are employed by Koch, and there's a good chance that their work intersects with your own story in some way. The great folks at Koch make products that help improve medical devices, consumer electronics, vehicle safety, fabrics for clothing, filtration for clean water, and innovations for popular household brands. And in the process, they're creating jobs and opening paths to opportunity for everyone to create their own American story. Learn more about Coke's incredible work at cokeind.com. That's K-O-C-H-I-N-D.com. And today, Alex brings us the life story of Coke's Director of Environmental Health and Safety, Cheryl Corrigan. Take it away, Alex. Cheryl Corgan's life started out as a river rat along the St. Croix River. We couldn't wait for summer to arrive so that we could go out first thing in the morning and the sunrise is pretty early up north and, you know, just being so excited to just get out and play and find out what was going to happen on that particular day. So we would fish, we canoed, we did all sorts, swam just all day long, which was really incredible. We built rafts, you know, kind of sounds kind of cheesy, but you know, sort of Tom Sawyer-ish. You know, think about a kid raft, right? We'd just find whatever we could find on the, on the side of the river. We were pretty um, adept at scrounging and you know, on, on riverways, any kind of moving water, there's always wood that comes downstream, whether it's, you know, tree branches or actual wood from folks' docks or other stormwater kind of carried bits of pallets. And so we always found something that the hard part was actually getting it to stick together. <laughs> so. Um, so that was the, the rope and the clothesline and, you know, the, the errant nails that we could find. So I, I sure don't want to leave the impression that, that we made anything that was fabulous or even workable, but we sure tried. My dad was a history teacher and his specialty was American history. And he was very enamored with 
of the American Revolutionary period and you know kind of how the the frontier was opened up after the revolution in the early 1800s and he did a lot of research on a, a particular American frontiersman George Rogers Clark who was actually related to um, the Clark, the Lewis and Clark expedition. But at any rate, so George Rogers Clark was this really amazing frontiersman. So my dad, when we were little, would take us out to state parks, again, you know, kind of along this river corridor, and he would set little clues on the trail so that we could ultimately find him or you know whatever surprise was at the end of the trail. So he was trying to teach us how to be good outdoorsmen and woodsmen by looking and looking down and looking up and learning how to read a compass. And so I think he had this vision of us all being you know pretty, pretty adept out in the in the wilderness if we needed to be. So anyhow, and I think that too, that experience with my dad and my mom, of course was very, she wasn't as much the explorer, but she was the one who was there to, to kind of find us if we got lost. <laughs> so anyway, but I think that that experience was, it was really important to me. So, so being outside and, you know, just being in, in the environment, but then also, you know, kind of being an explorer really led to me wanting to be a geologist and a scientist in particular. I mean, there were so many, so many things to look at and by my dad you know kind of setting up these little hikes with clues it really taught us how to be better observers in a fun way right it wasn't like okay kids we're going to go out on a science hike but it was more like hey you know we're going to go out and you guys are going to be explorers you're going to be frontiersmen so you know look for the clues so that you can get to the end point and then we'd have lunch or, or whatever but it was a really cool way of getting us to, to be more observant. And that's the basis for science, right? It's observation. And then looking at things and then saying, why does it work that way? And more importantly, really having that focus and curiosity to find out the answer. So I think that those experiences really shaped kind of how I thought about the world and, and what really made me want to do the things that I've done in my adult life. His example for me was really huge and so I've tried to do that with my own kids. And um, you know, just go out on hikes and, it, and, and get outside and, it, and, and not, with any, not with any goal, but just, hey you guys, let's go for a walk and you know, maybe we'll see something. And, or maybe we won't. <laughs> but, but it's never time that's wasted when it's time outside and, and you're observing and you're feeling the sun on your face and smelling the smells and looking at the leaves and doing whatever it is that you're doing. It's restorative. Cheryl has an incredible background of working in the public and private sectors and both to enrich the natural environment she loves. Here's Cheryl on an important lesson she learned while at the company 3M. I want to tell this story because it, it's a tribute to one of my bosses. His name is Bob Paschke, 
and I, I remember I was working in his group, um, working on cleanup sites, and a consulting firm that I had been working with on a project asked me to come work for them in their consulting firm, and they offered me a whole bunch of money and a car and, you know, a lot more than what I was making at 3M, and I talked to Bob about it. And he looked at me and he just said, hey, you know what, Cheryl, you got to do what you got to do. But, um, you know, here's what I think about. And he said, you got to be happy every day, not just on payday. And um, that was, I don't know, 25, 26, 27 years ago, something like that. And I will never forget those words. They were really important to me. And I, I've repeated them <laughs> for my own kids as they're looking at their, you know, kind of what they want to do. It's like. If you follow the money, you know, you'll be okay, but you know, you gotta be happy every day, not just on payday, really resonated with me. But at the end of the day, you gotta be working on the things that really make you wanna get up in the morning. Like Sam Walton, he, he didn't get up in the morning to make money. He get up in the morning because he wanted to make the best story he could possibly make and he's really excited about that. And so, you know, kind of having that, that driver and doing the things that you really love to do, life with a purpose and really driving you towards something, that's what it's all about. And that's, you know, kind of fulfillment. And here at Coke, we talk a lot about self-actualization, you know, understanding what you're really good at and then doing more of that because that's how you get to be happy. And man, I have been super fortunate in my life to be able to have a family, an incredibly devoted husband who supported that. And it was like when, when we moved to Seattle so that I could learn more about <laughs> how to help native salmon runs, he was like, okay, great, you know, we'll, we'll learn more about that. And, and then coming back and working for a consulting firm where I designed uh, municipal well fields. That was incredible because it wasn't about how much money I was making, it was about, wow, this is really interesting work. And at the end of the day, I am learning something here that I think is super cool. And I'm also helping people. And that's what gets me up in the morning. And when you're happy to get up in the morning, it's not annoying that it takes a long time to get to the top of your career like it usually does. And unlike what our culture is telling us, it took Cheryl 15 years to get the top public sector job and 22 years to get the top private sector one. Well, you know, it's really kind of funny. So I'll, I'll use as a lens kind of my own kids because they're early in their careers. My son in particular, he has a lot of angst about, oh, you know, I'm just not moving fast enough. I'm not moving fast enough. And I use his example and I reflect on my own career and every move that I made I, it wasn't made so that I could move up and to the right if that makes sense it was made more from the perspective of I want to do something that's really interesting to me and something that I think is really valuable so I think that <laughs> I think everybody's career progression is you know up to them and what really motivates them but the learning and the lifelong learning is it is a lifelong process. It doesn't happen overnight. And it took me, you know, quite a bit of time to get to where to where I am today. But I am here because of the richness of all those experiences and that laddered up to helping me get to this point in my career. But I will say, you know, throughout the the arc of my career, I never had a vision of, wow, I want to be, you know, 
some big guy someday. It just, it just happened that way because it fit what was really important to me and at the time, in the context, what was important for the constituency that I was working with or for. And great job as always on that, Alex. And also a special thanks to Cheryl Corrigan for sharing her story, our Opportunity America series. And my goodness, her experience is a river rat along the St. Croix River. It's a river that runs 125 miles long between Wisconsin and Minnesota. And so many Americans enjoy these spaces. And what she said about her experience as a kid exploring and enjoying nature, well, that's why I live where I live. Cheryl Corrigan's story, an Opportunity America story, sponsored by the great folks at Coke Industries, here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and from everything in between, and we love telling stories about American Dreamers, and as always, our American Dreamers series is sponsored by the great folks at Job Creators Network, who work hard to help effectuate policies that turn small businesses into bigger ones. And our own Alex Cortez brings us the story of someone that you likely don't know named Bill Austin, but you'll be glad to have met him. Let's take a listen. No one had ever paid for a quarter of school for me. I had to earn my own money, and I took a job making earpieces for hearing aids. I didn't really expect at all to be in the hearing aid business. I thought it was a boring nothing business. I was going to be heroic and save lives as a doctor. And what do I care about old people? I was going to be with the young nurses in the hospital <laughs> doing great things. And uh, But an old man came in and no one was able to help him. And they asked me if I could take a look at him. And I did. And when I saw what it meant in his eyes, that was my first like real direct contact with somebody helping them with hearing. And when I saw what that meant to him, it was like giving him life. I went home to uh, 2770 Dean Boulevard down by the Calhoun Beach Hotel where I was staying and I had a cot upstairs and I went upstairs, sat on the edge of the cot. I do remember on the way home there was a quote in the cantilever of the bus that struck me and I lived my life kind of in that direction and said, the true path to humility is not to stoop till you're lower than yourself, but rather to stand at your true height against some greater nature that will show the real smallness of your greatest greatness. And that's how I felt. I didn't want to be falsely humble. I wanted to be challenged like that by some greater nature. I got home and I sat on the cot. And as I sat on the edge of the cot, I started talking out loud to myself, just like I was talking to somebody, but there was no one there. 
And I said, Bill, the reason you want to be a doctor is so you can help people. If you do this work, you'll be able to help people and you won't kill anyone. As a doctor, you're sure to kill many. And I realized something that I hadn't seen before. I saw the future and knew what I wanted to be part of. I realized at that moment, I said, Bill, how many people can you help a day as a doctor? 20, 25, night will fall, no one will be coming then, you'll wake up the next day and it'll be again serving those people that you can serve if you work with teams of people, the hands of many. Coming together in a business, your products and services can touch an unlimited number of people. You'll have the leverage to move the world. And I wanted to be part of that team. I didn't have to own it. I didn't have to run it. I've always felt like no one works for me, I work with them. I just saw that as the future and I had to go to work to get to the future. And so the first thing I did, the only asset I had was a little rental house that I'd made money during the Korean War. Scrap metal was valuable and I took the axe to many a vintage car. I chopped them up and sold them for scrap and I made enough money to invest in a little rental house. And that's all I had was that little rental house. So I sold that house and that was the money I used to start the business. I had $3,000 and I had to make a profit before I ran out of money. I'd read books that said, uh, well, you know, you got to expect to have financing for the first five years or it'll be at least three years before you're profitable when you start a new business. Well, I figured I had three months. I didn't have a choice. I was down to the last money to meet my cost that week at the end of three months and the next week the checks arrived more than enough to cover that week and I barely made it. I'd receive an order, I said, you know, hearing is the connection to the family and life and who knows this might be a graduation or a, a wedding of a child or something for this person's hearing aid that we're servicing. So at the end of the day, the last pickup of mail was about 5.30 or so in front of our facility. If there was one order that was completed after the mail pickup, just even one order, I would always put it in the car, drive it downtown to the main post office, go to the back up on the dock, ask the guys working there which box was going out, which was being processed next, and I would put it in that gurney to make sure that that hearing aid was moving back to the person who needed it. There wasn't as much profit in that transaction as the gas that it took to go there and come back. 
But to me, the most important thing was to not let down someone who trusted me with that service. And I wanted to do the best I could every single time. And I got stacks of letters from people saying they never received service like this, and the word spread. And so our business grew rapidly. And what a voice, Bill Austin's. And it's like so many of our American Dreamers stories. Starting out with nothing, taking that little rental house and taking a chance. And in the end, really providing a service to people, changing their lives. Hearing aids doesn't seem so glamorous. It didn't seem so glamorous to Bill. And when we come back, we're going to continue with Bill Austin's story. He's the founder of Starkey Hearing Technologies. His story, here on Our American Stories. stories and Bill Austin's story, and Bill picks up things with the story of how hearing loss used to be addressed many decades ago. Um, You know, the cupped hand, (laughs) a horn from an animal, the wide surface of a fan, the sound would strike it and you could hold it in your teeth and uh, the vibration would go through your teeth and stimulate the other ear. There was acoustic chairs that would pick up uh, like in lion's mouth the sound and you could have a, a discreet tube you'd stick in your ear. There hearing canes people would walk with and then they'd hold their cane up and try to talk to you. There, there were all kinds of non-electric things made in the 1800s. At the turn of the century, Miller Reese Hutchins in Mobile, Alabama had developed the Acousticon, an electronic hearing aid, which was used at a coronation in Great Britain. They were A and B batteries. You'd strap something on your leg. uh, You'd have something under your clothes, and then you'd have a giant microphone, which would be about that big around. You'd wear outside on your chest to hear with, and big, thick black cords running up to the ear. And so the aids used to be uh, large. Sometimes you'd carry them. Some of the electronic aids, you'd have two people carry and put it in a room for a businessman to sit there and talk with. And then the transistor was developed in the 50s, and hearing aids were one of the first things that transistors went into, actually. That made it possible to make them a lot smaller. We made eyeglass hearing aids that Eleanor Roosevelt wore in her glasses, the Otarian. Big, thick, huge bows. No one was supposed to know. I mean, the things were so thick. They were <laughs> thick. And, you know, they won't know I wear hearing aids because they're in my glasses. <laughs> I don't know who wouldn't know. And they had barrette models that you could hide in your hair and earring models that were big, clunky-looking earrings that would clip on your ears. and. Uh, Different ways to try to make hearing aids discreet, and uh, they were pretty big. I felt, I could just feel people, and I felt that they felt impaired 
and stigmatized because they were wearing something hanging outside. And I said, that's like a crutch. If we can put it in the ear, and if it's custom made for their ear, it'll be like part of them. And they will feel better about the correction. And I looked at the space in the ear and I said, that's just unused space. I can take these parts that are strung out in mass-produced hearing aids and recombine them into the space. I can get them in the space. I can make these things. In 1961, I made the first really nice in-the-ear hearing aids. And that was considered, uh, you know, kind of revolutionary at the time. And people would call it an invention. I never called it an invention. As far as I was concerned, I was just reconfiguring components to fit in space that happened to exist in the ear. <laughs> Hearing Aid Magazine asked me in 1979, what will be the future of the hearing aid business? And I said, there is no future because in the future, we will really be in the communication business, helping people communicate across barriers of language, distance, noise, to help people with normal hearing communicate and function better. 39 years later, in August of 2018, Starkey unveiled Livio AI, a hearing aid that does just that. Translate 27 languages, forwards and backwards. Russian to English, English to Russian, it doesn't matter. Starkey's relentless pursuit of innovation in service of their fellow man has led the company to grow to $650 million in annual revenue, making it the largest hearing aid manufacturer in America and leading Forbes to estimate Bill's personal net worth at $2.5 billion. I had to go to work for money, I'd stay home. I, I just, it doesn't motivate me. It does not motivate me. I'm not interested. I haven't ever been interested. I knew I, it's unhandy to run out of it, and you have to treat it with respect and not waste it. But uh, as far as being motivated, somebody saying, this could be really big, you can have a really lot of money. I, like, I'm about as bored by that as I can imagine. What is exciting is to have the resources to say, yes, we can. And this Yes We Can is most seen in their Starkey Hearing Foundation, which is Bill's primary focus, not running the company. <laughs> They've given the gift of hearing to those who can't afford it in over 100 countries and to over 1 million people so far. So we uh, have an opportunity to earn from our service that we give to those who can pay and then if we do a really good job, we have enough left over that we can help those that need our help. And, you know, I usually manage to use up most of our money. I, I find good uses for it. I travel the world helping people with hearing aids. More than half the year I'm traveling because it's what I know how to do. I'll do thousands and thousands of hearing aids per year myself. I've listened to more hearing aids than anyone in the world many, many times over. And I could make more money, I guess, if I concentrated on work, but I wouldn't know life. So I trade money for life.
you know, there's no other person that is president of a hearing aid company or a CEO. None, none in the world that would do what I do, for sure. There are six companies, soon to be five, that make 98% of the world's hearing aids. We're the only one in the U.S. The other ones, they never touch a patient. They've never fit a hearing aid in their lives, not one of them. Several layers down, it's all suits and business. There's none of them that would take the time to work on deformed ears. Like, I took the time to detail those very difficult ears that were sent pictures of. They're just hugely deformed. I'll go over there after you leave, and I'll cut the shells, and then I'll go up and show the technician how to build them. Anyone else would say, my time's worth too much. That's just one little pair of hearing aids, one order. They would say, you know, I've got million-dollar businesses to, to, to take care of here. I can't do that sort of thing. Well, I can do it. If you pay someone else to do it, it's like, uh, I'm, I'm wealthy, I'm rich here, I, I feel guilty, so here's some money. But no one makes more time. When you give your time, you give yourself. Where does Bill Austin get this view on life? I couldn't rationalize the existence of God. I mean, I just couldn't rationalize it. Anyway, I think about it and think about it. And in my very early 20s, I was thinking about what God would tell me to do if he could talk, but I just kept trying to think for him. I never asked. And the greatest thing I ever did was ask. I don't know what possessed me to do that because I never had before. I just said, I'm not going to think about it anymore. I'm going to accept on faith alone. That was the best thing I ever did. Because the direction I received was better than any idea I've ever had. It's given me life because I've been able to focus on what's really important. And so my idea of wealth, if you had to say, Bill, are you wealthy? It's not a, it's not a number in the billions. It's not a money. I'm wealthy if someone needs a hand up, if I can say, yes, I can, I, I'll help you. That lifts me up. I'm spiritually nourished by the work I do. I feel energized. And if I ever had to say, I, I'm sorry, I can't do that, I would feel poor. I would feel very poor. And my goodness, this is more than just a business or a startup or entrepreneur story. And again, this is what we've discovered doing these American Dreamers series. And they're, they're just, each time I hear them, I'm just more stunned each time. The generosity of these guys, the nature of the people, especially these founders. He, he wanted to solve a problem, and he did. People felt impaired and stigmatized from these large things hanging off their ears. And he goes, I just wanted to custom make them for their ears so it would become a part of them. And that changes someone's life. And then on top of that, here he is giving away over a million, again, a million hearing aids for nothing. For nothing. That's some social justice, folks. I mean, creating jobs, creating a tax base, solving a problem, and then giving away one million, one million hearing aids, which you could have charged someone for. When we come back, more of this remarkable story, Bill Austin's story, a part of our American Dreamers series here 
on Our American Stories. Our American Stories and Bill Austin's story, the billionaire hearing aid CEO who spends most of his time fitting hearing aids on individual customers. When the president of Burundi, we were there a few years ago, and I was fitting people in church at a congregation of 8,000, and they televised the service, and they asked me to come up to the church. I was fitting on the grounds behind the church, and say something and so I came and spoke to the congregation and I, I stepped down and the president got up and he said can you believe that the Starkey people came all the way from Minnesota to help us and he said and Bill Austin left his and I knew I knew the next word before he said it I knew he was going to say he left his family to be with us, and, and I started, I said, no. And he goes ahead and says family, and I said, no, 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 that's wrong. I didn't leave my family. I came here that I might know the rest of my family. And that's just the way I feel. That came out of me without me thinking about it. I had no control over my voice. This is the president of the country, and I'm interrupting him when he's talking on TV, and I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the audience. I was headed out the door to go back and fit hearing aids, and I, all of a sudden, I just started shouting no. That's wrong. I, I didn't leave my family. Juarez, Mexico used to be one of the most dangerous border cities. When it was at the height of its bad problems, I went there and a woman came into this hospital where we were doing the mission with her grandson, who was about 13 years old. She said, I've been waiting a month for you to come. She didn't live there. She lived quite a ways away. And I said, well, why didn't you go home? And she said, I couldn't because I might have missed you. And she said, I, I can't live much longer. And my grandson won't be able to take care of himself if he can't hear. When I had the boy hearing good, you should have seen that woman's face. It went from all of this weight of the world on her to just total light. It was like she was happy that she could die. To see someone truly happy that they can die. She had been willing herself to stay alive because she knew her grandson who was an orphan couldn't take care of himself. He had no one else. I saw a woman in El Salvador, early 30s, and her kidneys failed. She lost her eyesight. Her hearing was fading out. And they asked her if she had any last wishes. And she said, I would like to thank the people who have cared for me. I, I, I need to hear to be able to thank the people. And they said, well, someone's coming. We were coming in about three weeks. There's someone coming with hearing aids, but you won't be able to live that long. And she said, yes, I will. 
and she did. They brought her in in a wheelchair. I fit her with hearing aids. Probably about the only time that tears were just running down my cheeks because of the nobility of this woman, not asking for something for herself, but just wanting to be able to thank people. She was so happy. She did thank them. She lived another over two weeks before she died. I learn from every patient I work on because I really care. I've done like six U.S. presidents and Nelson Mandela and Mother Teresa, two popes. I mean, I work on everybody. Movie stars, Steve Martin, Ozzy was just here, Charlton Heston, to whoever. They, the people that I used to watch, Gene Autry and Roy Rogers, when I was a kid, little boy, they, they become my friends. Billy Graham used to say, Bill's my best friend from Minnesota, and Gene Autry would said I was his best friend. The only thing he was buried with was something I gave him that he treasured more than anything else. You know, I fit Robert Schuller and Hugh Hefner the same day. I have no barriers. And so people really respond to being cared about. And some people, even though they're really important, like movie stars and rock stars and celebrities, they have people chasing them all the time because of who they are, wanting their picture with them, wanting this, wanting that. I don't want anything, and they know it. And to have someone care about them who's not looking for something is very special to them. Special to them to feel that, to be cared about without, what am I gonna get? I'm gonna get my picture with this guy, I'm gonna get to go to his rock concert, I'm gonna get something. And I'll be invited to go to rock concerts and things by people who come here, and, and I don't go because I'm too busy. I don't have time for it. So they recognize that. So we're on uh, kind of on the same plane, person to person, instead of them being in the celebrity world and me being a celebrity chaser. They'd like to relate to some people in their lives like that. You know, Warren Buffett came here one day to get hearing aids, and the day he came, I'd just flown in a whole plane load of kids from Idaho School for the Deaf, and I'd fit the kids in Oregon at School for the Deaf and Washington School for the Deaf. I got home, and Idaho said, what about us? And I said, well, I can't come back, but I'll charter a plane and bring the whole school down. And I was working on them, and Warren came in, and so I'm going to take care of anybody that shows up. And so I'm detailing impressions over there on that motor, and then I was cutting shells over here. And Warren comes up watching me, and I said, would you like to have lunch? Yeah, yeah, he said, let's have lunch. I said, well, the cafeteria is right up that ramp. Go up there and you can find anything you want to eat, Warren. And I could see the disappointment in his face, and I said, Warren, the conference room is open, just bring your tray in there. So he thought I was going to join him. Well, anyway, he comes in here, and I'm busy cutting aids for the shells. And so I told Mark McCarthy, I said, go in there and talk to Warren while he's having lunch. And he came out, and he's frustrated because he can't get my attention. So he pulls out this big, thick billfold. It's like 
almost three inches thick. It's huge, thick wallet. And he holds it out in front of me and I'm down there cutting shells and he said, do you want Warren's money? And I said, no, I don't need Warren's money. <laughs> he wanted to buy my company because he couldn't get my attention. And the company isn't for sale and I don't want to sell it. And I told him, I said, it wouldn't be the same. They're looking at what's your return? What's the shareholder return? What are you making? Uh, I'm giving a lot away. That wouldn't go over so big. I could have sat here and had lunch with a guy. Some people pay a couple million dollars to have lunch with him. He came to me and I didn't have lunch with him. And the reason I didn't have lunch with him is why well, had some poor kids that no one knows from Idaho that needed my help. So what am I going to do? Neglect them because some big deal is here? And what a what a story. Uh, Warren Buffett has a net worth of over $80 billion, and yet Bill Austin didn't treat him any differently. He was busy fitting hearing aids for the kids at that Idaho school for the deaf, and then he helped Warren Buffett. And I just love it. He said, look, there are people paying a million dollars to have lunch with this guy. But not me. Oh, and by the way, Warren, my business isn't for sale. It's not for sale. When we come back, more of this remarkable American voice, and this is a distinctly American voice, Bill Austin's story, our American Dreamers series, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. More after these messages. Continue with our American stories in the final portion of this remarkable life story of Starkey Hearing Technologies founder, Bill Austin. Well, I think the shaping of my life began with my grandparents living with them during World War II. My parents were off working in a munitions plant in another state. But I asked my grandfather about his father who died when I was a baby. And he said, well, the thing that struck him about his father wasn't what he did as much as the way he did it. He said, for instance, when he was eight years old, some people moved in three and a half miles from them. And his father heard that they had uh, children, but they had no cow. And he told his son Franklin, my grandfather, which was his youngest son, and the most expendable, he said, Frank, uh, those children will need milk. You take our best cow and walk her over there so the children will have milk. And Frank did that, my grandfather, and he came uh, back and he said what he noticed was he never mentioned ever to anyone anything about giving those folks a cow. And that struck him. He said he noticed that he never sought the people out to say, I'm the great guy that sent the cow to you. 
He said it was simply a matter for him that the children needed milk and he had more than one cow so he could help. So as he told me about his father, his father was an orphan in the Civil War. His family had been massacred by raiders and uh, they'd burned the farmstead to the ground and stole the horses and cattle. And This boy had run into the bushes at five years old. He was the only survivor. He didn't even know what state they came from. The only thing he knew was his name. He had nothing, he had no one. Uh, the lieutenant, when he saw he was the only survivor, stopped the pursuit and took him to a place of safety on the James River. To a mill, the first place he could drop this boy off safely with a miller that had one leg called Peg Leg Nelson. And uh, Peg Leg uh, let the boy sleep in the mill and work for his keep. And so he made him a bed of straw in the mill and he worked there until he was 15 years old and was never paid a cent. But in those days at 15, it was time to leave and strike out on your own. And he didn't know what to do, how that could happen because he had no money, no place to get started, knew no one. And the lieutenant who found him so happened passed away. And the lieutenant had willed this boy the land he earned for serving on the Union side in the Civil War. My great-grandfather took that land and became a successful farmer and raised a fine family. And that's why I have a chance at life today is because that happened. Now, the land wasn't worth much. Land was almost free and those cheap in those days. But it meant the world to that young man that someone gave him that chance. So, you know, I used to not be able to talk about the lieutenant because I thought it was so noble that he would care. He could have given it to a relative, the land, to a friend, someone else that would have said, that's my great friend, the lieutenant, and got some recognition for it. But instead he gave it to someone who couldn't thank him, couldn't do anything for him because he knew the boy needed a chance. So I, you know, I thought that was incredibly noble. I wanted to live my life with some kind of contribution to life itself. So I admired him. I wanted to be like him. And yet Bill couldn't bring himself to publicly talk about him for decades. Well, I'd choke up and cry because of the lieutenant. What's wrong with crying? Oh, well, you know, men aren't supposed to cry in front of people, in front of audiences. And I, I, if I tried to tell the story, I just, I just, I couldn't talk. And then I realized I needed to because I decided it was a good example because this one person did what he could without getting recognition or being paid. Today, we affect millions of people because of one act of caring. So I like to say we can't afford to miss a chance to do that because one simple act might be so significant for the world. It might keep your own great-grandchildren from being killed by terrorists. It might, it might, who knows what it might do if you continue down the path of respect for life and caring and what might happen if you didn't. So I used to think it was the lieutenant, 
that's when I first stopped and it went there. And then I realized, well, it wasn't the lieutenant. It was the person who cared about the lieutenant who made him want to do that. And then, well, it was the person who cared about that person. And then I realized it went all the way back to his love. God's love. That he gave us that started the whole thing. That's what makes people different. That's what gives us our true humanity, is that spiritual enrichment we get from knowing God's love. And I believe that's why I was told that my responsibility was to reflect, use hearing to reflect his love so people might know him. I think you know him from feeling that caring through other people, not directly. It's through people. So that's my idea. I'm not saying that I know. I'm not a preacher. I don't want to be a preacher. And I don't want to say that that's what God is telling anyone to do. I just know that's what I feel. In 2010, right after the earthquake in Haiti, well, I was in Haiti. Miley Cyrus was with me. And Miley's over fiddling with her phone at this Catholic school. And we're fitting kids with hearing aids. And I said, what's she doing? And they said, well, she's tweeting her followers. And I don't carry a phone. That's another thing that's weird that I don't do. So I'm not looking at text. I've never seen our website. Not once. I don't know what's on it. I don't know how to look for it. I don't know what it would be on it. I, I mean, I suppose... It's really lovely. Is it's it? a nice website. Yeah, I mean, I, I would... I wouldn't mind seeing it. It's just that, I don't know, I guess I'm always busy and no one's ever showed it to me. And So, anyway, Miley says she's tweeting that this is the best day of her life. And I said, well, that's what everyone says. That's what President Clinton says. That's what Ray Lewis says. That's what athletes, movie stars, presidents, everybody says this is the best day of their life. Uh, Ray Lewis, right after he won the Super Bowl in New Orleans and he, he was the most valuable player and he goes on a mission with us in March. And he said, I've been given a job by ESPN, but this is the best day of my life. I want to do this. This is, I've never done anything this good. We're in Tanzania and Africa. They all say that. And so I said, well, that's what everyone says. And I started thinking, millions of followers, that's it because I felt like a failure. Uh, you know, the Twin Towers go down, there's terrorism here and there around the world, and I felt like I was losing ground, like we weren't reflecting light as fast as the darkness was encroaching, and I wasn't gonna get the job done. And then I realized, I said, hey, with this, we can affect a consciousness shift with so many followers that admire these people and think about what they're saying, we could compound the message to more and more people and try to get more and more people addicted to good virus. And so I thought that I see the way. So I went home from that experience and I started thinking virtually every day, I really like my job and I think I know how to do it now. 
if I only had more time. I wish I had more time, but I would never pray for it because I thought I had no right to ask for anything for myself. Because my only prayer every day in the morning before I would leave to work would be for his direction so I might serve better than I've ever served before. God's will be done. And great job, as always, to Alex. He does a superb job on this series. And thanks again to Job Creators Network. And they work hard to fight for the policies that help small business owners grow and hire more people and have more impact on the world. And my goodness, there is just so much here to unpack. But what we did learn here is the power of a story, folks. Him listening to his grandfather the grandfather telling him about this lieutenant. And never having met this man, he wanted to be like this man. And that is the power of stories. It's their imitative power. And that's what we try and do here on Our American Stories, give you stories worthy of imitation. The world doesn't have enough of those. They need a lot more. And we try to do that for you each and every day here. He said, we can't afford to miss a chance. Who knows what it might do and what might happen if you didn't. God's love, that's what he was talking about here, and his responsibility to use hearing aids to reflect God's love so, well, he might know him and we might know him. I'm not a preacher, he said, but my goodness, he's a minister, and he's got a ministry, for sure. Bill Austin's story, the story of Starkey Hearing Technologies, here on Our American Stories.